0: Scriptures, let's look together this morning at Psalm 56. I'm going to read this entire psalm. It's just 13 verses. Then we'll try to, well, then we'll ask God to help us understand it, to explain it to us and apply it to our lives. Um, This isn't really a warning, but um, I'm going to give you the best I got. This is a hard psalm for me. Try to organize and try to communicate the whole thing to you. So bear with me. Today seems more like a list than normal or something. Just hang in there. Um, Hopefully the Lord will discover something to your heart from this psalm. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on a far off terebinths. Yep, I have no idea what that means either. Maybe it's a tune. Don't really know. Uh, if you find out, let me know. A midcom of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God. Whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape and wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray together. O Lord, we indeed need to walk before you in the light of life as well. God, would you help us to see that unless we have your light, we are walking in darkness. Would you help us to realize that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, is the light of our life, and that it's only in him that we can ever really walk and travel. Oh, Lord, do whatever you need to do to us to get our attention. Do whatever you need to do to break into our lives, to grip our hearts, to get our soul's attention. Turn us to you that we may recognize that you are God and that it's only in you that we have hope. It's only in you that we should put our trust. It's only through you that we will ever truly be able to worship and praise. Help us, Lord, for your glory's sake. Yes, the glory of our Father, the glory of our Savior, the glory of the Holy Spirit. May your glory be displayed in and through us. Amen. A Christian counselor reminds us that no one talks to you more than you. You ever thought about that? No one talks to you more than you do. You don't listen to anyone more than you. And this psalm lets us listen to a conversation that is going on in David's heart and David's mind. This psalm is written to us as a conversation. It's a conversation that David is having in his own mind. It's a conversation that David has had in his own heart. And what that means is that it focuses us to think about our lives too. This psalm forces us to think about our lives and what, what we're doing. This psalm forces us to think about this. And perhaps we'll answer these today. I'm going to try. Maybe I won't, but I'm going to try. What would my life look like if I really believed that God is for me? How would my life change if I really believed How would my life change if I really believed that God is for me? That's where we're going today. I hope that you can answer those questions as we finish. Unless God wants to do something else, and then he will. You see, this conversation, we figure out that this conversation is going on because David asked this question, verse 4. He actually does it twice, but we're going to start where he starts in verse 4. What can flesh or what can man do to me? David is wrestling in his mind. What can man do to me? Well, let me tell you how he got to this point of asking this question. The title tells you, at least gives you a hint. This is a midcom of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. This question, what can man do to me, comes from this particular historical experience in David's life. This is what went down. You see, David had a very close friend, his best friend, named Jonathan. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in several different places that David and Jonathan were so close, it was as if their souls were knit together. They were the best of friends. David happened to be the son of King Saul. David had a very up-and-down relationship with Saul. As a matter of fact, it had just happened in David's life that he was over at King Saul's palace, and they were there gathering for a meal, some type of get-together, and Saul picked up a spear, and he threw it at David from across the room and tried to nail him to the wall. I hope none of that happens to you at your Thanksgiving meal. But, I mean, just just think about that. Here you are in the king's presence, and he's throwing a spear at you. Saul was terrified of David. He was jealous of David. He was envious of David. And there would be times where Saul wanted David in his presence, and there were a whole lot more times where he wanted nothing to do with David, and he wanted to kill David. Sound like any of your experiences with people? Minus the spear? Where people want to be in your presence, and it's good, and and things are wonderful, and you feel like you're helping them, and you're getting somewhere in your relationship, and then the next minute, it seems like, and maybe even not just the next minute, but maybe, maybe for the next season, this person doesn't want anything to do with you, they just drop you like we wish we could drop our bad habits. They want nothing to do with you. David had finally gotten to the point where he knew he had to run. And Jonathan decided he was going to find out for sure, and he did and then he went and told David, David, you have got to go, you have got to get out of here and they hugged each other, David and Jonathan hugged each other, they wept, they cried, and David took off and Before he got to this land, this little area called Gath, before he got there, he stopped at this little town called Nob. You see, David was on a run on the run, and he was running so hard and so fast that he didn't really have anything to eat. And he didn't have anything to protect himself. He was just running. You know that feeling? You ever been running so hard that you've forgotten about your meals? You've forgotten about responsibilities and you can't rest? That's David. David goes through Nob and he runs into the priest there and he says, I need something to eat. Actually, I think it's the priest that said that to David. But regardless... David recognized that he needed something to eat, and the priest gave him some bread. He realized that David was on the run. David kind of lied to him a little bit about what was going on. And the priest ended up saying to him, well, you need a weapon. So here, let me give you a weapon. And the weapon that he gave David was this sword. And it wasn't a normal sword. It was Goliath's sword. Goliath was this huge figure in the Old Testament. I mean that physically. He was like nine feet tall. Guess where Goliath was from? Gath. David runs through Nob, gets something to eat, grabs Goliath's sword to protect himself, and ends up in the hometown of the man that he killed. David is on the run, and he flees to Gath, and he's there, and he's all alone. Now, you understand the reason why he would say, what can man do to me? Because he's thinking about it. It's on his mind relentlessly. Yes, he's in gath, but he's thinking about how much people despise him and everything else. As a matter of fact, he even tells you, he even answers this question. What can man do to me? Well, he answers it for you. He answers it for me. Look at verse 1 and 2. Look at verse 5 and 6. Listen to some of these descriptions. If nothing is connected with your life experience yet, maybe some of this will. Look at verse 1. What can man do to me? Well, man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. Verse 2. For many attack me proudly. All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Here you go. David feels oppressed. He feels that all day long people are after him. It's not just physically that David feels threatened. It's obviously emotionally as well. People are slandering David. They're taking his comments out of context. They're twisting them. They're stirring up strife. They're lurking. They're watching his steps. Think about that. When you think about God, do you think that he's just watching your steps, waiting for you to fail, waiting for you to mess up, waiting for you to blow it? David is describing here that he thinks the majority of people around him are just watching him, just waiting for him to mess up. And I wonder how many times we think that way about God. Maybe he's just there waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us or do something. Maybe maybe you feel like that's the way the relationship is with your best friend or your spouse. Do you feel like they're just waiting for you to mess up? Or if you want to turn that around, is this the way that you treat people? That you're just waiting for those around you, whether they're close relationally to you or not. Are you just waiting for them to mess up so you can pounce? Well, that's where David was. He felt as though he was encircled on every side. He felt as though he was the bullseye. He felt as though everybody was chasing him all day long, that he was being oppressed and trampled on, and people were just watching, waiting for him to fail. If you want to even add to that a little bit more, David's presence in Gath, think about that for a minute. David's presence in Gath already hinted to you where he came from, He passed through Nob and came to Gath. Just think for a moment about what David's presence meant upon his arrival in Gath. See, David was a symbol, a reminder to those in Gath of defeat. He was a reminder to them of death. He was a reminder to them of shame. He was a reminder to them of hurt. He was a reminder to them of embarrassment. David had killed their hometown hero. They had looked up to Goliath to win all their battles for them. Goliath was the guy that intimidated everyone except for this little teenage boy. And now he's here with us, and he comes into our city carrying Goliath's sword? Who does this guy think he is? That's why, if you read in 1 Samuel 21, when David enters the town of Gath, People start pointing and looking at David and saying, do you remember the song that goes with this guy? Saul has killed his thousands, but David, this one, has killed his ten thousands. You see, we read that as believers and think to ourselves, yeah, somewhat, maybe just me. But those in Gath, that song, the faces of that song, the faces of that chorus are their people. Their loved ones, their community friends, their acquaintances, those that they grew up with. David coming into Gath was only a reminder to them of everything that they wanted to forget. How desperate do you have to be? How desperate do you have to be to feel more safe in the land where you killed the hero? And in the land where you are the rightful king. Now David wasn't king yet. But God had anointed him. Those were his people. Those were the people he was going to rule over under God. How desperate do you have to be to feel more safe in the land where you killed the hero than in the land where you are the rightful king? David's hope was gone. Gone. David's hope was gone. David going to Gath, if you will allow me to press the envelope here a little bit, and I'm really not trying to offend anyone. I'm really just trying to get us to think very deeply. So please receive this this way. David going to Gath is like building a mosque at Ground Zero. David going to Gath is like Osama bin Laden just strolling the the, the streets of New York City. David was there, and you can imagine how those people felt. And David was there because he was being oppressed and felt he was trampled on by everybody back in his land. But something is going on. Yes, it's true David feels this way. Yes, it's true that he describes all of this for us. But I want you to look at the text. David is talking with himself. David is unloading. He is discharging his conscience. He is writing down the way he feels. He is writing down what's going on in his life. It's absolutely true, but it doesn't stop there. He's talking with himself, he's talking to himself. He's not just listening, he's talking back. And what David says back to himself is something that is incredibly profound very profound. It is rich. It is rich in doctrine. It is a a profound teaching of the scripture. And I hope that all of us will wrestle with this. What David says in a nutshell is in verse 9. This is what David says in talking back to himself. God is for me. That's what David, that's the, that is the kernel, that is the nugget, that is the central truth of what David is saying. God is for me. Now let's look at the text. Because yes, it's absolutely true that David says that he believes and he trusts. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 11. Listen to it. When I'm afraid, which he was, I put my trust in you. Is David praising God in the midst of this? Yes, he is. Look at verse 4. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. It's true. Look at verse 10 and 11. In God's word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. Verse 11. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Yes, David has committed himself to continue to fulfill his vows that he's made before God. Look at verse 12 and 13. I will perform my vows to you. I will celebrate with thank offerings to you, to who you are. Yes, you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, you have delivered my feet from falling. All of that is true. But the point is that there's something that's underneath those. There's something that's underneath his faith. You see, his faith rests in something. There's something that's underneath his praise. His praise is towards someone. There's something that allows him to want to commit himself to continue to follow God and obey God and love God and trust God, and that all of that can deal with his fear and anxiety. It's absolutely true. There's something underneath it. And what's underneath it is that he knows that God is for him. He knows that God is for him. And what that means in the midst of your life in which you feel as though you are oppressed and you feel as if you are encircled on every side and that everybody's after you all the time and there are physical threats to you or there are emotional threats to you and they are all real, it means that we have to talk back to ourselves and it means that we start with this, that God is for us. Now you might wonder what in the world does that mean? Well, he begins to tell us in verse 8. See, he's building up to this. He says it in verse 9. God is for me, but he's building up to it. See, the first thing it means that God is for us is this, that God keeps count of our tossings. Isn't that a hilarious word? A synonym for that is wondering. And it's not hilarious in the silliness of the word. It's amazingly hilarious. God takes count of all of our wanderings and all of our tossings. He knows everything that's happening in our lives, in my life and in your life. In the darkest darkest situation, when you feel the most oppressed, when you feel the most alone, where you feel as though you are safer in enemy territory than the place where God, you thought God has placed you. God keeps track of all of our wanderings and all of our tossings. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you know those words? We're going to sing them in a little bit. David knows that God is for him because God keeps count of all of His wanderings. You see, what's going on in David's life and what's going on in our experiences when we feel threatened and we, and we endure oppression and hardship and suffering and trials and we're on the run, what's going on there is that God won't allow us to remain under the illusion that we're in control. It's not going to happen. God will not allow us to remain under the illusion that we are in control. It's his mercy and it's grace. It's his mercy that reminds us and shows us and reveals to us that we're not in control. You see, if being in control is your deepest struggle, or if being in control is your biggest blind spot, I know, which means you wouldn't necessarily know it, But if it's your biggest struggle or your blind spot that you might not know yet, the worst thing that can happen is that you stay in control. The best thing that can happen is that that illusion is removed. And that's an evidence of God's grace and his mercy. That he works in our lives through circumstances to remind us that we are not in control. And God does that all the time. The second thing that he says here in leading up to this statement that God is for me is that God puts his tears in a bottle. Isn't that wonderful? You put my tears in your bottle. It's as if God has a bottle. And on the outside of that bottle, it says David, Timothy, Osborne in all the tears that I've ever shed or ever will shed because I feel oppressed or anxious or I'm on the run, that God takes every one of those tears and they fit right into that bottle with my name on it. It's not just that God acknowledges them. It's that he owns them. And one day he will remove all of them from my eye. God is for me. What in the world can that mean? Well, what it means is that he sees wherever I am, wherever I'm going, how much I think I'm in control, and he is at work to get rid of me thinking that. But that means I'm going to cry. That means it's going to be hard. That means it's going to be painful. Yes, and all the tears you shed, Dave, all the tears you shed are right here in this bottle with your name on it. I've taken a record of it, an account of it. I'm with you. I know everything that's going on. That's why David would add, actually, there's a book. Did you notice that? Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You see, God has a book about David's life. God has numbered all of our days. He has numbered all of David's days. He's numbered all of our days. It's the story of our lives. God knows everything he knows all of our wonderings. He knows all of our tears. He knows all of our physical, all the threats that we endure physically and emotionally. He knows what it's like to be oppressed. He knows what it's like to be scared. He can know that about us. And it's all in his book. You see, this is really deep. This is really deep teaching. What this is showing us is that God is sovereign. That's what David is affirming. God is sovereign. You see, God is not absent in our afflictions. God is not absent in our wanderings. God is not absent in our tears. God is not indifferent to our wanderings. God is not indifferent to our tears. He's not indifferent when we receive threats. You see, what God is doing through the gospel is that all that stuff, suffering, tears, difficulty, it's all formative. It's all forming our lives. Suffering is meant to reorient us beyond this life to what is eternal. Affliction, oppression, being on the run, losing control, losing the illusion that we're in control, understanding that our blind spot is to want to be in control, is all God reminding us of what is eternal and pulling us away from everything that we want to cling to that isn't eternal. You see this book right here? This book shows us that God is not only all-powerful, but he's all-loving. This comes in many different forms, but perhaps you've been able to talk with those who really struggle with Christianity and really struggle with suffering and evil, And oftentimes their arguments boil down to, well, either God is all-powerful or he is all-loving. He can't be both, right? And without getting into the details of all of that, I just want to show you from the psalm here that David says, actually, God is both. He can be all-loving and all-powerful at the same time. Even in the midst of struggle and hardship and evil. God's sovereignty and the fact that he has a book and the fact that he's laid out my life is something that's really, really hard for us to accept. You see, it's hard to accept because we live in this land called America. And our hearts are drawn to this. Not blaming a country. But we live in this world in which we live in the land of opportunity. Let's put it that way. We can make all of our dreams come true. We live in a land where we can make all of our dreams come true. If we just work hard enough and are determined enough, and some might even say if we just get a little bit of luck on top of that, we will get exactly what we want. That's the message. It's one of the many messages of our culture. And the problem is that message has bled into the church. That message has bled into Christianity so that what we think Christianity is, is this. God wants me to be happy. And God gives me greater control of my life. And so having God in whatever I'm doing is actually the ultimate formula to get what I want. See, that's how that message of our society creeps into Christianity and the church. It makes us think, I just need God, and then I'll get whatever I want. That's why we're so horribly offended When we hear that we're not the captain of our soul, or we're not the captain of our destiny. You see, what's going on with David here is he's not arguing for this. He's saying the fact that God is in control, the fact that God keeps record, the fact that God puts my tears in a bottle, the fact that God has a book is actually my life. This brings David comfort. He is comforted by the fact that God is in control, that God has ordered all of David's days and steps before he had taken even one. It comforts him. You see, when God is in control and God is both all-powerful and loving, what that means is when you endure trials and struggles and oppression and when you're on the run and you're being falsely accused and slandered, what that means is that evil is still evil, pain is still pain and God is not happy with any of that and yet he is redeeming us in the middle What it means is that He is at work in the midst of everything that we are enduring in our lives. It's not that He exists to take us away from all pain and away from all suffering. It's that in the midst of all that, He takes record of it. He notices it. He calls evil, evil. He calls sin, sin, and He will ultimately deal with all of that. And in the midst of that, He is also working to us greater enjoyment and delight and trust in Him. That's the message of Christianity, that God never condones sin or evil. He doesn't save us just to make it escape, make us escape from it. It's that he's using it to redeem us. Well, how do I know that God is for me? How can I know this? If this gave David so much comfort, if this gave David comfort to know that God is for me, how in the world do I know that God is for me? Well, there's only one way. There is no other way. There will never be another way. There's only one way to know that God is for you. See, this little psalm here, it's the roots of what gives birth to what some have called the greatest chapter in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. You see, it's in Romans chapter 8 that God is telling us about his plan for us. And it ends with this incredible this incredible section where it says, Well, what then can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord? You remember this? If not, go back and read it and ask it into your heart over and over and over. Any pain, suffering, threats? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is for us. How do I know that God is for us? Is that I have to view God, the living God, through Jesus. It means that I have to view my life and everything in it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I view God through Jesus, the one that came, the scriptural Jesus, if I view God through Jesus and if I view my life through Jesus, that's the only way that I will know that God is for me. Because then it will begin to make sense of pain and suffering. And evil will still be evil. And wrongness will still be wrongness. And pain will still be pain. And God will still be good because He's working to redeem everything, including in the midst of my suffering, He is saving me. And He's pulling me away from myself. And And He's not allowing me to believe in the illusion that I'm in control. And He's making me understand that he is with me, and that he's for me. That he even takes record of my tears. And that my whole life is about understanding him through the work of Jesus Christ. That my whole life is bound up in understanding who I am through Jesus' death and resurrection. Because when you have Christ, You see, there's no condemnation anymore. When you have Christ, you have God. And when you have Christ, God is for you. And he's against evil. And he's for you. And he's making you more into the image of his son. You see, that means... That we don't have to view pain and suffering and all this that David is going through that connects with our lives. We don't have to view suffering and affliction like this. Well, I just need to white-knuckle my way through it. Or I just need to smile and move on. We don't have to view pain and suffering as just, well, if I, just could, learn just, if I could just learn the right thing and say the right prayer in the right way, my pain will be gone. What it means is that we begin to understand that we're not in control and that God is and that he loves us. Pain is not the worst thing that can happen to you, beloved. Neither is death. They're both going to happen. It's inevitable unless the Lord Jesus returns. Pain and death are not the worst things that can happen to us at all. The worst thing is when we fail to deal with reality. The worst thing is when we become disconnected from what is true about God. That God is sovereign, that my life is not about me, and that pain and suffering connect me to Christ and connect Christ to me. That's why David would say the question from verse 4 again in verse 11. You see, he's talking to himself. Here's everything that's going on in my life. People are after me. They're slandering me. They're threatening me. I am afraid. What can man do to me? Well, he does a pretty good job. A lot. And then he begins to remind himself that God is for him. And so then you come to verse 11. And it's almost like it's, this question is in a completely different tone, isn't it? Because if God is for me, what, what really can man do to me? Pain and suffering are not meaningless. Pain and suffering are not ultimate. There's no wandering that is outside of his book. There are no tossings that are outside of his book. As a matter of fact, there are no amount of tears that are too many to fit in his bottle with your name on it. Let's pray.